your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, and we'll pick up in verse 27. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. This is the very Word of God. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Oh, Heavenly Father, we long for nothing else except that you are glorified. We desire you to be glorified in our lives, and even as we think of the brevity of life this morning, we also rejoice at the goodness, the goodness of this life, the goodness of all of your gifts to us, even to enjoy the goodness of God in the land of the living. Oh Lord, we want to savor that this morning. We thank you, you're such a good God. You've been so kind to us. You have blessed us with life. You have blessed us with measures of health. You have blessed us with family and friends. You have blessed us with this church family. And all of this rooted in the fact that you have blessed us by the sending even of your own dear Son, Heavenly Father, You have sent Jesus Christ, the Incarnate One, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, obedient in every way, righteous, and yet who offered Himself as a sacrifice 
for our particular sins in order that they would be washed away, that they would be covered, that we could have forgiveness and have our guilt taken away. Oh Lord, you're so good to us and we thank you for your goodness this morning. We thank you that the message of the gospel prevails. The message of the gospel is going out even this morning. We thank you for Paul Taves, pastor here, who is ministering in Cochrane this morning at, at Grace Cochrane Church. We just pray for that church as it continues in this transition, getting ready for Josh Carey to assume his, du- his, his duties in September. Lord, we pray your hand of mercy be upon that church. Lord, we also pray for witnesses here in this city, even for Redemption Church South and Pastor Quentin Whitford. Just thank you for that ministry as they've uh, been working for five or six years now. We ask, Lord, that that church would continue to flourish and grow. We pray for uh, the many Ukrainians that are attending that church. We pray that they would be able to get settled here in Calgary, but more importantly, they would be settled in the gospel, in the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you for the way that you are ministering in our midst. As, as I mentioned before, Lord, there are people who are suffering and sad this morning, but there are also many who are, who are rejoicing, who are so thankful for your goodness. Uh, even as we've been celebrating a number of marriages uh, recently, and also uh, weddings in particular, and also some engagements, and we look forward for new weddings. Lord, we pray for all of these newly married couples and also these couples that are getting ready to get married. We pray that you would bless them. We pray that your hand would be upon them. We just thank you that we can be partner and participate in such a good season of life for these folks. So Lord, go before them. We pray as well, even for everybody who's in summer vacation mode right now. We ask you to protect them, but also give them rest. Lord, we thank you for productive lives, and we ask that you would help us to continue to be productive, even bearing fruit that honors you, but help us also to see that that rest is also important, that that we need to find our rest in you, and so help help us to use our leisure wisely to steward this life that you've given us. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us the gospel of our salvation, You have called us even to follow Jesus Christ and Jesus summons us now to take up our cross, to identify with him. And we do that even by heeding your word, your word preached, your word brought to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So help us, Holy Father, to be conformed to the image of Christ as we take up our cross, as we seek to heed your word, as we seek to be filled with your spirit even as you act through your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I won't be here next Sunday. My family and I are going, traveling to Brandon, Manitoba for a rodeo. Uh, So one of my sons is in the finals rodeo in Manitoba, and so we're we're hauling out there, and I was thinking about cowboys and and uh, thinking of just some of my own growing up, hearing cowboys and cowboy stories. And there was this 
There was this old cowboy that used to help us out when we were rounding up cattle. And he would come around and he would tell campfire stories. You know, campfire stories probably are, you know, sometimes almost like those ghost stories or, you know, scary stories around the campfire. And this old cowboy, I was just a little wee little guy. This old cowboy would tell, tell the scary story about the goat man. The goat man. I know maybe you've never heard of it. Uh, but he would tell about this goat man, this guy that was half man, half goat. And I still remember it because I'm still a little bit scared about it, to be honest. And what I found out later as I do all this study is that there, there kind of was a belief in a goat man. Uh, his name was Pan, and he was one of the Greek gods. Now, when I say Pan, you probably think of Peter Pan and the Disney movie and, you know, dude kind of flying around in green tights and that kind of thing. There's no, there's no goat part of it. Um, but I was thinking of this as I, as I was studying in, in Mark chapter 8 because because Pan, not Peter Pan, uh, but the goat man kind of Pan, was worshipped in the place that Jesus ministered to here in Mark 8, in Caesarea Philippi, as it was called. That's where, where Pan was worshipped. It was a very pagan area, a very Gentile area. And, and so, even, even at Caesarea Philippi, it had been a place known for idolatry. Uh, Jeroboam, the, the Israelite king, had, had set up his golden calves there in the northern part of Israel in that region. Um, of course, when the Greeks came in, they, they encouraged then the worship of this Greek god Pan. And you can see, you can see on the internet, there's pictures of these open shrines that would have a little carved out area where they would put this idol of this goat man in this little little impression in the rock. And, they, and it was actually at the source for the Jordan River. And, and so you have this, all of this going on. And then by the time of Jesus, uh, Philip Herod of the, of the Herod family, he was so devoted to... Caesar Augustus and to the Roman Empire that he rebuilt these shrines and he named the city Caesarea to, to name it after the imperial Caesar. But then he called it Caesarea Philippi just to get his name in there as well as all politicians want to do. So this kind of, this is the place that Jesus came to. And it's interesting that into this context, we're faced with the question of Jesus' identity. There are many competing claims about who Jesus was back then, just as there are competing claims about who Jesus is today. Jesus, we are told, he came to, to that region in Caesarea Philippi, and he asked that that very important question in verse, verse 27. Who do people say that I am? Now, there are many competing claims. Uh, there was anticipation of who this figure would be. Now, the people were saying possibly John the Baptist, possibly Elijah, one of the other prophets. Peter makes that amazing confession. He says... You are the Christ. You are the Christ. 
Even the term Christ is difficult for us to understand today because it's so changed around in terms of meaning and often used as a swear word. But these competing identities get into the claims of Christ. Who is Jesus? You think you know, you're, 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 you know about Jesus, but is it the true Jesus? The Christ was anticipated. He was a political figure. A political figure. Like David, 2 Samuel 7 was prophesied. Or he was a prophetic figure like Moses. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, he was prophesied. Or he was a priestly figure. Like Psalm 110 says, a priestly figure like Melchizedek. Or even he was a heavenly figure, like Daniel 7 says, he was even the Son of Man, like a Son of Man coming down out of heaven. So all of these features were anticipated. And Peter, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, which means the anointed one. He's the anointed one. And so this anticipated, longed-for Son of the living God, as Matthew 16 adds on there. So it's very realistic then, as thinking about who this Jesus is, and, he's, and the question is coming in this context of paganism and pagan worship, it's very realistic to think that Peter, when he thinks of Jesus as the Christ possibly, or many others, they're expecting some kind of geopolitical ruler who has cosmic power to vindicate all of the oppressed in Israel and to punish the oppressors and all of their idolatries. Just look over at this this shrine of Pan, you know, wipe that stuff out. Is that what you've come to do, Jesus? Kind of clear out these idols? And so it's very interesting that as we think about who do you say that I am, and we ask that question even of ourselves, people, maybe you're in this category, people are always looking for saviors. They're looking for people to save them. In Europe and North America, we've had a long list. Caesar Augustus claimed for himself to be the Soter, the Savior. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte certainly thought of himself as the Savior of the French Republic. Mussolini came to power in Italy as a Savior. And of course, you know, Mussolini made the trains run on time, you know, right? But does that qualify then him as a good savior? They thought, oh, well, the trains run on time with Mussolini. He's a fascist, evil man. Pierre Trudeau in our own country had Trudeau mania, hailed as a savior for Canadian democracy. Barack Obama in the United States, first black president, was viewed very much in soteriological terms by many. Certainly Donald Trump, make America great again, viewed with salvific type features. In the Middle East, Saddam in Iraq, or the Shah in Iran, or later the Messianic Khomeini, or Idi Amin in Uganda, or Mao Zedong, uh, Chairman Mao in China, or even Xi Jinping. Very, very savior-like in how they present themselves. But all of these would-be messiahs, they love to toot their own horn. 
just like most politicians. Uh, no politicians here, I don't think, so I don't, I'm not going to offend anybody here. But generally, politicians are all about putting out their own positive press. But Jesus, in, in getting at his identity and making it clear who he truly is, not how he's necessarily perceived to be, Jesus does the exact opposite. And it's almost a throwaway line, but it's really important to understand what Jesus is doing. Verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What? What kind of a leader are you? Aren't you you wanting to get your message out there? Aren't you wanting everybody to know that the geopolitical ruler with cosmic power is here? Don't you want everybody to know? Shouldn't shouldn't we kind of get your public relations department going rather than shutting it down? And this just shows how different Jesus is from any other Messiah that you might want to look to. It also shows that when Jesus says, who do you say that I am to Peter? It is a question that still sits on each one of you, on all of us today. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Because we have all kinds of perceptions about Jesus, but truly, are they right? And so from this first paragraph, we see that Jesus actually personally cared about individuals. He cared about individuals. He cared about people, not just just groups. He cared about individuals. Because anyone who wants to ignore the necessity then of a personal faith in Jesus Christ, they're actually not representing Jesus accurately. Jesus is concerned with what you believe individually. Not just, oh, do you belong to the right group? No, no. What do you believe? Who do you say that I am? And that's what he's getting at with Peter. It's not just group identity. Who do you say that I am? These disciples, what did they personally confess? Anyone who says that someone else's faith is enough or a group identity is enough, they're not representing Jesus truthfully. Now, we can agree that there's blessings to us that we get when others are trusting Christ and they're sharing Christ and maybe they're parenting us toward Christ, or they're contributing to a society that tries to heed Christ. We can all get residual benefit from that, but that's still not enough. Only personal faith in Jesus alone saves. And so the question is, who do you say that I am? And you've got conceptions about Jesus. Are they the true Christ? Or is it a Jesus of your own making, like the Greeks made up with Pan? You know, you're going to make a You're going to make a a half-man, half-god of your own? That's what the Greeks tried to do. But it's false. You see, there's no wiggle room for anyone on this planet. If you've come here this morning thinking that you have wiggle room where you can kind of believe Jesus in your own way and have Jesus on your own terms, he just says very clearly, who do you say that I am? He gets to it. He's not going to let you get away 
with having wrong conceptions of himself. Everyone must answer, and they must answer truly. We are told by Matthew that Jesus added, upon Peter's confession, he added, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 16 and verse 17. And so there's all kinds of people talking about Jesus, but they still do not perceive the true Christ. They say even, they might even say they have some marginal faith in Jesus, but it may not be in the true Jesus. And so we, at this church and churches like us, we talk lots about identity in Christ. Oh, what's your identity in Christ? Who am I when I believe in Jesus? Very important question. Very important. But sometimes we're so caught up in my identity in Christ, we forget about the identity of Christ. Who is he? Who is he that I'm believing him in? And I can talk about my identity in Christ and forget and start thinking, well, Jesus is different than he truly is. Maybe you start thinking that Jesus is more miserly than he truly is, or that Jesus is more harsh in his judgment than he truly is, or that Jesus isn't as gracious as he truly is. And you start forgetting about who the true Christ is, and yet you've got your identity in Christ. Let's, let's, let's be clear. Who do you say that I am? It clarifies a lot. The true Christ, the incarnate Son of God, must be personally and exclusively believed in. No competitors, no substitutes for your faith. The only substitute in the relationship, the personal relationship between you and Jesus Christ, is actually Jesus himself. He's the substitute, and you rely upon him as the substitute lamb, as the substitute sacrifice, as the substitute servant, as the substitute sin bearer. You belonging to a group is not a substitute. You having a Christian family is not a substitute. Only Jesus can be your substitute, and you trust in him alone. So who do you say that I am? That's the question that's opening us up here. Because we all think we know, and yet it's easy for us to have wrong views of Jesus himself. And so we need to answer with Peter, you are the Christ, the true Christ. But as we're going to see, sometimes even that, we get confused on that part. So secondly, As we've seen this question of identity, who do you say that I am? Secondly, looking at the things of man, I'll just start off by uh, the saying, you know, you've heard the saying, don't meet your heroes. Don't meet your heroes. I hope you've heard that. I I don't think I'm making that up. I've heard guys say that to me. I've thought it. But it's the idea that, you know, you, there's someone that you've admired, that you've looked to, you know, you've, you know, you've got their hockey card or you've, you've got their poster or you've followed their career or someone that you admire, you want to emulate. And then you, you get close enough to them that you meet them and you see their life in detail and it's pretty disappointing. It's kind of even disillusioning. You're, you're like, oh, this, this hockey player or, or this pro wrestler or this pastor... You know, I, I say the pro wrestlers, my boys and I were watching Stampede Wrestling on YouTube. 
And I, of course, I used to watch it as a kid. I know, does that mean I'm a bad person? I know, it was, it was, but then I remember you'd meet, the, you'd see the guys after the matches. And you'd see the bad guys and the good guys, and they'd all be joking around together and getting in the same van together. And I'm like, yeah, but they hated each other just 20 minutes ago. It was so disillusioning to see them afterwards, you know, in the parking lot in High River or wherever we were. Uh, you don't want to meet your heroes. Because, of course, even pastors or theologians, the best of men are men at best. And, and Jesus had been truly confessed by Peter. You know, Peter's confessing that Jesus was a geopolitical liberator with cosmic powers, the Mashiach, the, Mas- the Messiah. But what does his hero start saying? You're my hero. And, he, and he, the hero is saying that he's going to lose. That he's going to be a loser. The biggest loser ever. That, that's what the hero is saying. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, at that point, Peter probably couldn't grasp the phrase, after three days rise again. He wasn't, he wasn't there yet. Because he had seen his hero. Here's this new hero that he's following. And he sees this guy, and he could only feel compelled to rebuke Jesus about this strategic disaster that was going to happen. This plan of disaster. How, how can you let this happen, Jesus? How, how, how could the Romans be fought if Jesus can't persuade the Jewish leaders to follow him? Where they're going to reject him and even kill him? You know, this, this does not sound like the Son of Man that Peter would have read about in his Bible in Daniel chapter 7. Just turn there real quick, because this is really important. Daniel chapter 7. Everybody le- likes reading from Daniel, because this is where all the heavy prophecies are. Right? All you prophecy uh, experts. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is a key. This is a key to the Gospel of Mark. Because Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says very often, he describes himself as the Son of Man. Well, where does that come from? Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, there's your, that's true dominion theology. That is, is, this son of man is the king. He's, he's the king, and everybody's going to bow to him. That, 
that the Son of Man is the King, is the Lord, has dominion. So that's what he has. That's what's anticipated. Peter knows this. Peter knows his Bible. He would know this. Jesus knows this because Jesus keeps describing himself as the Son of Man. But how could the Son of Man liberate Israel if he dies? How does, how does that work? How does that work? And so the point of Mark's narrative, the way it's being described, the point of Mark's narrative is to make you sympathetic with Peter. And I'll tell you, at this, at this day and age, the way things are in society and the way the church is in relation to society, it's pretty easy to be sympathetic with Peter. <laughs> what do you mean? We lose? What, we lose? We, 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 we fail? Everybody's going to be against us? It's not going to turn out swimmingly? Peter, understood to be the source for Mark's record here, Peter wants us to know how easy it is to want Jesus to be something different than what he is, than who he is. It's so, it's so much the case we want Jesus to be the way we want him to be, rather than the way he really is. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know, when you read it, if you're a Bible reader and you're familiar with this, you read it, you kind of skip over it because it's too obvious. It's so stupid, right? Peter is so stupid. You're rebuking Jesus. You don't do that, right? Pretty obvious. You don't rebuke Jesus. But, but when we skip over it, we don't feel the sting because we're not really feeling how Peter was feeling. And the way Peter was feeling is the way a lot of you and the way I can feel a lot more commonly when things are not going our way and we look up and we ask, okay, Jesus, why is it going like this? Even if I can be careful but so bold as to say, Jesus, why did the plane crash? That's when this is not academic it's so serious, it's so real, but we ask and we feel the sting of it. Why? Why is it? You, you, I'm ready to rebuke you, Jesus. This does not seem to be in the plan. This doesn't seem to fit with who you're supposed to be. And that's the feeling, is that you want to rebuke Jesus. Of course, you're also civilized. Nobody would come right out and rebuke Jesus, I know. But you've, I guarantee you've felt it in your heart. I guarantee you've felt it. Why, God? Have you, ever, have you ever said that? Why? You start to question and you're ready with the rebuke towards Jesus and the way He does things. We need to be sympathetic with Peter to understand how a human being could rebuke the incarnate Son of God, even the true Son of Man. You know, I just think about this. It, it reminds us like this idea. I, I, I describe it as 
getting your back up against God. You're kind of getting your back up. You know, it's, it's, I think of horses. You know, horses, they'll, they'll start to arch their back just before they get ready to buck you off. Uh, they, that's the signal. They'll start to, they'll start to get their back up. And, and you just know, you know, he's, he's getting ready. The back's coming up. He's resistant. He's not happy. And then it's going to be a disaster. But you, you can be that way with God. You can be that way with God. You ever start feeling that way with God? You're arching your back. You're balling yourself up. You're ready to blow up in anger. And maybe you've, come, you've become over the years very good at hiding that or, you know, whatever. But, but that's how you're feeling. We all get kind of clever. And we can hide our anger at God. And we can maybe direct it as anger at other Christians or anger with the church or anger with the pastor. You know, there's all these people that say they're ex-evangelicals. And they're simply people, I think, they've, they just started getting their back up. They arched their back and they wanted to rebuke the Son of Man for how he runs things. And instead of coming out and just saying that and being honest, then they rebuke the evangelical church and they, they kind of buck off all, all restraint. So that's kind of, I think, probably what's happening somewhat in your life, or it has happened, or it's easy to happen. Just like Peter, we need to be sympathetic with Peter. But of course, what happens when you rebuke Jesus? Did Jesus say, oh yeah, no big deal. Yeah, yeah, whatever you say, Peter. You, you must be right, Peter. Right? Peter, you're so smart. You're so clever. You know what's going on, Peter. Oh yeah, I'm mistaken. You're, you know what you're doing. No, no. Jesus said, verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's an amazing statement, chilling really, but you want to know a secret? This is the missing verse that was lost from the Old Testament Bible. And you're thinking, what is Clint talking about? This is the verse that is missing from the end of Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, that say, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And right there, right there, that's where the missing verse goes. Right in there. Because then Adam should be speaking and he should say, Get behind me, Satan. But it's not there. There's no get behind me, Satan. He could have said it. He should have said it. He didn't say it. Get behind me, Satan, with your lies and deceptions. But at that point, where's Adam? It's all silence. Adam isn't even on the scene. The silence of Adam is such a tragedy. The first Adam didn't say it, so the last Adam had to. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For the last Adam, that is Jesus, anyone and anything that stood in his way from achieving what his father sent him to do would be rebuked and assigned to Satan. 
even Peter, one of his best friends. Jesus basically said to his buddy, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'll just say, in our, in our pride, in our arrogance, are we silent when we should be resisting Satan's schemes? And then we're, we're complaining when that, you know, that slogan, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, when that doesn't turn out the way we dreamed it would. Right? Some of you, some of you, I, I just know, you, there's disillusionment. You just like, my life has not turned out the way I thought it would. The wonderful life part that supposedly was promised to me, if Jesus has this wonderful plan, it doesn't seem to be very wonderful for me. No husband, no wife, no children, maybe no achieving kids, no public recognition, maybe no health, no wealth, or, or uh, not as much as I thought all of these things. See, friends, we need to be careful, very, very careful, that our little, little resentments, these little resentments, they're expressed in this way, and maybe you've said this even this week, oh, I never have things go my way. You ever said that? Oh, this always happens to me. You, say, you ever say that? Those little resentments, they are little rebukes at Jesus. Little rebukes at him. And so all of a sudden you see Peter, Peter's not, not the weirdo here. Peter is the representative of all of our expressions. We all have these little rebukes of Jesus. And Jesus has to remind us periodically who is the Son of Man and who isn't. You think of how patient and gracious Jesus is to his children. But I'm going to tell you if you're here as well, if you've refused to surrender him, you surrender to him, I should say, you can expect his rebuke. Jesus isn't fooling around. He's not going to let you play church and yet not follow the true Christ. And so he will rebuke you. And, and I just say, woe to you for your arrogant unbelief. Why keep resisting? And so then that brings us then to, to then this, this calling that Jesus has in verses 34 through 37. And it's this calling in verse 34 that I think addresses each one of us, particularly if you're here and you are concerned with the message of Christianity for the world and you're concerned with Christianity and its influence in Canada, if you're concerned about that, as I am, you're concerned about the state of the church and Christian faith in Canada, if you're worried about that, then there's a key phrase that you have to catch here. And it's easy to skip, but it's a key phrase. He says in verse 34, If anyone would come after me, if anyone. This is called the universal offer. The universal offer of the gospel. If anyone would come after me. 
It is extended to everyone. It's extended to Justin Trudeau and Jordan Peterson. It's extended to Taylor Swift and Greta Thunberg. It is extended to everybody. Whoever is on your list you don't think it's extended to, it's extended to them too. All your, you know, blacklist, X-list, you know, put line through their name list, people you don't like, right? You don't keep a list like that. But I can guarantee you've got one in your head. I know you do. And it's really hard for us to think that the universal offer is even for them if anyone would come after me. The universal offer is there. As Joseph Hart, the hymn writer from the 18th century, he put it, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And that's the universal offer it's put out there. Do you feel your need of him? That's all you need to do. Do you feel the need? Does Justin Trudeau feel the need for Jesus Christ this morning? Well, I pray that he would. I fear that he doesn't. I don't think he sees the need. But he needs to. He needs to. And the offer is there. It's not, a, it's not the fault of the gospel. It's not the fault of Jesus. And it's not the fault of the church. It's Justin Trudeau's fault if he's not believing or whoever it is. Jesus says, follow me. Not just notionally agree with him, nor follow him for a little bit, or follow once, but simply follow him and keep on following. That's all it is. Follow me and keep on following. But you ask, okay, What does this following look like? Because this is where we get into it. This is where all this stuff about, oh, well, what is an evangelical? All of that, I could care less. Because these evangelical sociological groups, it doesn't really matter. Are you following Jesus? People say they're Christians all the time. Okay, fine. I don't care about your label. Are you following the true Christ? That's all it is. And so if he says that, what does following look like? And Jesus says it means taking up his cross. Specifically, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is, even take up one's own cross. But it starts with self-denial. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me me. See, to follow Jesus, contrary to the TV preachers, to follow Jesus is to deny yourself. To deny yourself. To follow Jesus is to deny your personal lordship and then submit to Jesus' lordship. Philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche, they didn't like that idea. They didn't like that. They called it a slave morality. But let's be clear. Jesus said, you follow me, not me follow you. Are you clear about that? Lots of so-called Christianity in the world is not, you know, I follow Jesus, but Jesus follows me. I got Jesus in my hip pocket. He follows after me. He's like my dog on the leash. He keeps me comfort, makes me happy wherever I go. Oh no, he doesn't lead me. I lead him. 
He's there where I want to go. Jesus said, you follow me, not me follow you. A.W. Tozer said, we want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. Right? Oh, oh, I don't want to be put out. I don't want to be put in discomfort. I don't want to die. I don't want to have to put anything to death. You, oh, Jesus, that's great. You do the dying. I'll just, I'll just kind of have my comfort over here. All the world can dig up complimentary things to say about Jesus so long as Jesus follows them. Or as Tozer said, they love it so long as Jesus does all the dying. But there's nobody apart from a work of grace who will instinctively wish to take up our cross and follow him. Nobody naturally wants a theology of the cross, as Luther put it. We all want a theology of glory. We want glory. We want to be glorified. What did we just sing? As long as you are glorified. That's actually a theology of the cross. We want to be glorified. We want it all to be glory. Glory, glory everywhere. And glory for me. And I get recognition. And I'm glorified. And it's all wonderful. And it's all a parade for me. Every personal growth coach, every self-help guru will tell you that you should avoid people, you should avoid places, you should avoid anything that drags you down. Right? If I put that into a digital product, I could make a lot of money. Right? And yet, Jesus says, you have to be pulled down by the most shameful, embarrassing, painful thing in the world, the cross. The cross. You know, they're all beautified now. Have it around your neck. Put it on your lapel. Jesus only lets you come if you share His stigma. His stigma. It's a stigma. We have to take up our cross, which is our public display showcase of our shame and association with Jesus. That we would rather be viewed by the world with shame, and yet we want to identify with the true identity of Jesus. That's what we want. That's what it means to take up our cross. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, you share his shame. And so, I know, I, I, just even this week, just people have told me about things that have happened. You, so you're, you don't get included at lunch at work. Or you don't get included in the big project. Or you get the vulgar nickname given to you. Or you get treated with suspicion. Or you get kind of sabotaged. Or you just are treated like a non-person. But friends, all of this is relative. Though we lose for ourselves this special story in this life, we gain for ourselves our soul in glory. That's what we gain. We do gain glory, but it is only through the cross. And this is the logic which Jesus is trying to disciple us in. Do you believe that Jesus is still teaching you? 
He is risen and ascended, and He is teaching by His Spirit through His Word. And he, that's why this is written. It's for you. It's for them, but it's also for you by the Spirit. And He's discipling us. He's teaching us now, and He's trying to help us to learn it. And He says, as He said to them, He says to us now, verse 35, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is a higher philosophy than the Stoics. This is more soul-nourishing than the Buddhists across the parking lot. This is more helpful than the Nietzscheans. This is definitely more radical than the Romantics. So you can pick your philosophy or your movement that's popular today. doesn't matter. This is higher, better, more hopeful, and more soul-enriching. No one hated his own life, Paul said. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So self-love is assumed. It's assumed. You need to take care and take responsibility for yourself, for your life. But if you want to save your life, you have to lose your life for Jesus' sake and the gospel. Don't ever think that serving Jesus, you're throwing your life away for nothing. You aren't. All of our losses, all of our sacrifices, all of our prunings, all of them are for Jesus' sake because we love him and we follow him and we trust him for our future. Otherwise, how, how do you cope with a plane crash in the Kananaskas? You have to have hope in the future. You have to have the hope of life beyond the grave. You have to have the hope of resurrection. As Psalm 56 verse 4 says, it's actually a prayer said to God, you have kept track, or sorry, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Yes, things are going bad. Things are poor. Things are hard. Things are difficult. You think nobody cares. Nobody knows. God knows. God's keeping track. He knows exactly the pain you're facing. He knows it. And as you're losing your life for Jesus and the gospel's sake, he's keeping track of all those losses, all those crosses, all those scars. And yet, although all of them are sealed in his book with the promise, the promise is put in the future, we will save our life if we lose it for Jesus' sake. And it's not us doing the saving. It's just the perspective that you either want to preserve your life or you want to give it up. Well, he's saying give up your life and I'll guarantee that your life will be saved. And if you're not even sure, maybe, maybe, you're, not, maybe, you're, maybe you're sitting here and you're not even here yet. You're not there yet to actually think about Jesus himself. You're just kind of somebody brought you here or I don't know why you're here. You're here. But you're still not connected to Jesus then for you, I would say, Jesus lays on you the most weighty philosophical conundrum that any human being can ever face. Because he says in verse 36, For what does it profit a man 
to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. You know, during the oil boom here in Alberta, you know, you'd see the big, the big oil patch truck, you know, big, you know, it's always a diesel, and it have big, big tires on it, jacked up, real big rig, and it'd always be brand new. They were always brand new. They weren't bought, they were just leased. Um, you know the truck I'm talking about. And it would have a bumper sticker on it, and it said, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Well, yeah, I mean, you know how that, that goes. According to verse 36, whoever dies with the most toys dies. <laughs> it dies. Yeah, archaeologists, they find Vikings buried with horses and longboats and Egyptian pharaohs buried with gold and jewels and snacks for the journey. And all of them died. They didn't take the stuff with them. So the person who decides that they don't want to follow Jesus and they don't care about the afterlife or heaven and hell, and they sit back and they think, I don't care, I'm going to enjoy life now, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Jesus concludes by saying, verse 37, what can a man give in return for his soul? That's the problem right now is there's, there's across the land, there are people, people that have sold their souls. They think they're nice people, but they've sold their souls and they can't buy them back. There's a terror that a lot of people don't want to think about. They think that they can dismiss Jesus now because it's kind of a low-cost, high-reward thing today. They can ignore Jesus and take the pleasures while they can, just like the pagans of old. But modern people are deeply afraid of spiritual forces that they don't understand, much like those old pagans. And if they let themselves be honest for a moment, the vengeance of the Son of Man would be terrifying. Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So, so, so I just urge you, because there's people that are coming now week in, week out, who have not, as the older writer said, closed with Christ. You're interested, you're here, but you haven't closed with Christ. I just urge you, please run to Jesus now. Run to Jesus now so that you are not cast out then. You know, lift up Jesus now so that you aren't thrown down then. Embrace Jesus and his shame now so that you are embraced in Jesus' victory then. See, there's no neutrality with the Son of Man. And so the question is, will you take up his cross today? And I just close then with just a couple quick applications before we finish. As you think about the brevity of life, even this morning, consider this. Ask yourself, what are you holding back from Jesus? What are you holding back? What are you refusing to let be crucified and put to death? Is it porn? Is it your pride? Is it your dreams? Is it your demands? Is it all the big plans you had for you and your family and your achievement and all these things? 
You need to admit to God and ask him to open your hands and open your heart to his will. Secondly, if your dreams aren't nailed to the cross, you can't carry them. If your dreams aren't nailed to the cross, you can't carry them. You are to take up your cross. You can't carry your dreams as well. They, you either have to choose either your dreams or the cross. And so we must nail our dreams to the cross and all of its losses and all of its shame. And you know what? Sometimes when we nail our dreams to the cross with all the loss and shame, sometimes the Lord, he gives us exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. But if it's not nailed to the cross, it ain't going to happen. And thirdly, and lastly, if you are following Jesus, you can look to him with an unashamed face. And you can look to him with the hope of being unashamed on the last day before God. But if you aren't following him, you have no confidence whatsoever. No confidence that God will not judge you in an instant, bringing your earthly life to an end and bringing shame on you in the court, the final court of the last day when you stand before the Lord as judge. You're worried about shame in society? What about shame before God? Let's take the shame of society and be with Jesus and his stigma and then we know, I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not ashamed now before God, and I'm not, I'm not ashamed on the last day. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, even those folks up in Caesarea Philippi. Let this generation, this church, be those who are following Jesus by taking up our cross daily. Losing daily that we might receive eternal glory, even the glory that the Son of Man has secured for us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we ask that you would wound us and heal us even now by the power of your Spirit. Thank you for your word. Teach us and disciple us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship together in true worship of the true God, even by the Spirit. Please rise. You don't have to be afraid of the rise of neo-paganism. Our God is far stronger. The power of the cross is way stronger. And so we hear this benediction from the end of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Newcomers lunch downstairs. Otherwise, go in peace. God bless you all.